Well, we're actually just taking a, not really a break from Ezra, but we're, we're leaving the book of Ezra just for tonight and looking at the Passover, the actual event. Not so much the feast and all the things went around, but the actual event because there's a lot of things that are um, thought about Passover and about the event that happened in Exodus that actually are not in the text. And, of course, one of the questions that got on this is, uh, who is the destroyer? And so we want to spend some time on that because it is amazing how important that answer is. And so we'll, we'll uh, spend a little bit of time showing you that. But last week we were looking at the fall feast. We saw that at the end of the section of Ezra that we were looking at, chapter 3, there was rejoicing and mourning that some people were glad because they had a temple and other people were sad because they didn't have what they used to have. And we drew from that, are we holding on to the past or not being satisfied with substitutes? And sometimes we have been, as Christians here in this day, we've been satisfied with some substitutes. Went over some of the things that we have substituted. That was all from last week. But here in this this one, before we delve into Exodus chapter 12, I want to throw out some of the importance. Why is it important that we understand who the destroyer is? There's a lot of opinions on this. We have to get past opinions. Opinions really don't matter. Something this important has to be known. So I want to know what this is. I was surprised at how long it's been since we've gone over this. And so anytime that it has been a few years since we've gone over it, i got to go beyond the notes that I have. And so I just strip it all down and I take it on like I'm going at it for the very first time. And so that's what we did with this. The destroyer here in 12, in Exodus chapter 12, there's... Three things I think we can say that it, that it could be. First off, the destroyer in Exodus chapter 12, is he working for, first off, is he working for himself? Is his destroyer just doing his own thing? Maybe he is just simply Satan. Is he just working for himself? Secondly, is he working for the kingdom of darkness? And third, is he working for the kingdom of light like an angel? Now, I don't think you can get any other answer than those three. Either he's going to be working for himself, he's working for the kingdom of darkness, or he's working for the kingdom of light. But it is really important that we understand which one that it is. We know that the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So this seems to make him the front runner. Because he likes to go around and do this sort of stuff. Now, if it is so that this destroyer is Satan himself, then, if you understand the story, Satan is following Jesus around and waiting to kill only those that Jesus gives him the green light for. Now, this would change some of your theology as to who lives and who dies. This would also have some, uh, some um, other consequences. If Jesus is depending on Satan to carry out his will, could you see some problems with that? If this, pers- if this destroyer is Satan, then understand that the blood of Jesus deals with the enemy and holds him at bay. If the destroyer, let me say that again, I want you to get this straight. If the destroyer is Satan, then the blood of Jesus unmistakably holds the enemy at bay. If the destroyer is Satan. This will call into question all kinds of other things. All kinds of other actions that the devil has done. If this is so, then could the devil ever go against the will of God? If the devil is following Jesus around, 
the land of Egypt and only killing those that Jesus says, all right, we don't have the blood here. You can go ahead and take the firstborn here. If that's what he is doing, then could the devil ever go against the will of God? Well, has the devil ever, ever gone against the will of God? That's how he fell. I, the five I will, we just covered them on Sunday. The five I wills that he spoke. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will. He's going to do all these things. He put his will over the Father. That seems to be a little bit of a problem. How could he have led the nations into sin when he fell? How could he have brought Sodom and Gomorrah into sin and to the point that Jesus was going to come down and see if it's as bad as, it, as he said it, or heard it was and then destroy them? How about the fallen angels that were brought into sin with the daughters of men? How would that have worked? That wasn't the will of God. How about Israel going into idolatry? That was clearly against the will of God. How about leading Haman to destroy the nation of, of uh, the Jews? That's clearly against the will of God. How about Paul killing Christians? That's clearly against the will of God. How about leading Judas into betraying Jesus? That's clearly against the will of God. So where do you draw the line as to when the devil can or cannot disobey God? So if God is using the devil in Exodus, does that mean that God needed him? If so, does God still need him today? These are all just questions. We're just throwing these things out there. I want to let you know, no matter which way you go, there's some complications. But I believe the Word of God gives us clarity on it. Now, how can you have two entities that we know clearly in Scripture are at war with each other also willingly cooperate with each other? That's a hard one for me. They are clearly at war. But how can they ever get into a place where they cooperate? Now, if the destroyer is of the kingdom of light, why is he killing and destroying? Why does the same one looking for uh, the blood not just do the killing himself? Why, why does he have to turn it over to someone else in the, in the kingdom of light? And why do we need a separate destroyer? Does the kingdom of light have a destroyer? And if so, why would one exist? These are questions we need to answer. So no matter which way we go, we have some problems. We have some things that we need to, to answer. So we're going to uh, spend some time with that. But that's first off, we're going to take some time and take a look at the Passover event. Not the feast. We're going to look at the actual event, how it took place in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So basically it lived with you for three days. On the fourth day you took it out and you killed it amongst the whole congregation. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. A lot of symbolism here. You are not to, well, let's go on verse 9. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roast it in fire. 
its head with its legs and its entrails. Where did Jesus go when he was buried? He went into the heart of the earth, which is hell. Hell is fire. You must roast the lamb as a necessity. And even afterwards, if you don't eat the whole thing, then you had to burn it. Now, you had to eat the whole thing. You couldn't pick and choose. Well, I like the leg. Well, I don't like the... Uh, no, you had to eat the whole thing. That would be a challenge for some of us. I know that I would be having uh, some challenges on there. You shall not let... Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Passover. So this is what they were to do for the first one. This is the instructions. And then we come to the part in verse 12 where we talk about what will happen. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. This is the Lord speaking. And will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, whenever the Lord is physically on the earth, we know that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the physical embodiment of God. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ who's coming down. I will execute judgment, it says in verse 12. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now the judgment is to come against Egypt. That is the, that is the statement here. We are coming against Egypt. However, as we come through Egypt, where the land of Goshen is part of Egypt, but it is their land. It is the land that is given to them. When I come to the land of Goshen, and the Israelites are there. The judgment is coming upon Egypt. There's nothing in this passage that says that if the Egyptians put the blood on their doorsteps, their, their, their uh, door, that it would spare them. I'm not saying that it didn't happen that way. I'm just saying that the passage does not give the room for the Egyptians to do it. If there are people in the land of Goshen, and there are, that are not Israelites, and they put the, uh, the blood on the door, doorpost and all, they were spared. But I cannot find anything that tells me that people in the mainland of Egypt were spared, that the judgment came and judged them all. That does help us understand some of these things that were there. Now, how likely is it that those in Egypt would have even heard the words spoken by Moses? Moses speaks the word of the Lord that he heard. How many people would have even heard it? As far as I know, Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Word... Maybe some of the guards that are around there might have, uh, you know what Moses was saying today? Maybe he brings it on home. But Moses did not have the assignment to go out into Egypt and to speak to Pharaoh or to speak to all the people and tell them all these things that were going on. He was told to speak to the Israelites. Now keep this in mind. The Israelites are in a foreign land. This is not their land. This is not the place they were given. God has always said you're going to be in a foreign land. So their time here, even though this has been home for them, they are in a foreign land. The judgment is coming upon the kingdom of the foreign land. But they are made separate from that. And if they apply the blood, they would be spared from the destroyer. So the typology that is here 
is that we are in a foreign land. We are not in our kingdom. We are going to go to our kingdom, but we are not in our kingdom now. In the foreign land, if we apply the blood, we are spared the judgment that is to come. That is what Passover is about. The curse comes upon the firstborn. It does not come upon the whole household. We talked about this uh, before. But it does not come on the whole household. There is no woman in the house, Egyptian or Israelite, who is, a, who is at threat here. The only ones is the firstborn male. It is the firstborn male of people. It is the firstborn male of cattle. It is the firstborn male in the household. That will come upon them. Now, the firstborn is, is uh, reminiscent of Adam, who was the firstborn. Jesus was the second Adam, so that the judgment would pass over the first Adam and come upon the second one, who was the lamb, which was Jesus. That was the idea. We went over the Passover, that uh, there were other places, other people that were passed over as well. Um, Ishmael was passed over for Isaac. Esau was passed over for Jacob. And there were other examples of this going on. So this was a, a thing that God had set up so that the curse, the punishment that was put upon the firstborn Adam could be passed over and put on to the second, which was Jesus. And so he would take that death. He would take that, uh, that penalty and we wouldn't have to. Because the blood would be applied. So that's the idea that, that is uh, portrayed there in it. Verse 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leaven bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That was important. You needed to follow this. You needed to take leaven seriously. And right anymore today, we talked about this part in the, when we went over the Passover briefly before. Christians today, we don't take sin seriously. We just, well, if I don't feel like it's sin, well, I don't know if I agree with the Word of God on that. Well, I don't know that this means anything to me. Uh, no. If the Word of God says it's leaven, get it out. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't call them slaves? He calls them armies. And yet they've had absolutely no training as far as an army is concerned at all. But he sees them as an army. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, that evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month of evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. Again, we're going over this. This, this is important. He wants them to get this down. No leaven is to be around. Take it seriously. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. So people that were non-Jews could come along and they could uh, participate with this, but you've got to take it seriously. I don't care whether you were native or not. Uh, leaven needs to get out. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. 
you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike lentil and two doorposts with the blood and this that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. Now the hyssop branch would add water to the blood. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the hyssop branch, there's a lot of water in it. So if you were to take the hyssop branch and dip it into the blood and it says strike, you strike it, then the water would come out of the hyssop branch and mix with the blood of the lamb. And what do you have as a result? A mixture of blood and water. We all know where that goes to. So they were doing this way, way back in the beginning when this thing was first started. Whether anybody thought of that when Jesus was poked, I don't know. But no one was to leave the protection of the blood while the destroyer was going through the land. So once you close that door, put the blood on the, on the doorpost, and this is what you do. Now this is the only time, this is only one time the destroyer is going. When they celebrated Passover from here on out, nobody dies. This is the only time somebody dies. This is a one-time thing. And that blood would protect them. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house houses to strike you. Not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now, get this. There's a whole lot of things that are read into this. The blood does not prevent the destroyer from coming in. Do you see that? It is not the blood that does it. Look at the passage again. What does it? What prevents the destroyer from coming into the house? It is the Lord. The Lord sees the blood. The Lord does not allow the destroyer to come in and take. It is not the blood. Sometimes we want to read this and we say, well, the blood was there. The blood was preventing. the No, the blood was not preventing the destroyer from coming in. The blood gave the opportunity for the Lord to say, you cannot go in here and prevented the destroyer from going in. That is how it happened. People read into it all kinds of ways, but we got to go back to what actually happened, what actually was going on here. So when he saw the blood, then he said, all right, you cannot go in here. Now the blood, what would happen if you just put the blood on the top? <laughs> That's partial obedience, isn't it? I don't see any room for partial obedience. I see when the Lord comes to the house, he's looking for the blood on the two sides and the top. Because now this is, this is the only time that it really matters. Is this one. Everything else is a remembrance. This is the time that it matters. When you put that blood on, you are saying to everybody, I am submitting to what the Lord asked me to do. I'm not trying to make sense of it. I'm not trying to figure out, well, what does it matter? Well, what if I don't use the blood of a lamb? What if I use the blood of, of something else? It doesn't matter. If you try and figure it out, 
and you try and reason out why you can do something else, it's not going to work. It is real clear cut. Lamb, goat, take the blood, get the hyssop branch. You got to dip the hyssop branch in there and you strike it. You don't just paint it on there a little bit. You strike it. This is how you're supposed to do it. You need to listen. So I don't know about you. This is the only time it matters. The other times, I guess you can do whatever you want. It's not going to, there's no destroyer coming out. This is the time. There is a one time destroyer coming through. That's important for us to know. This does not happen every time they do Passover. This is just to remember what had, had gone on. So when the Lord sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, if the blood is on the lintel and one doorpost, that's not going to work. It's got to be on, on, the, on both parts. Now, if there was an Egyptian in the land of Goshen, I can't speak to an Egyptian outside in the land of Egypt. I, I, I can't tell you definitely there was, that they uh, wouldn't be spared. I don't see any room for it in the Scripture. But if there was an Egyptian, a foreigner, in the land of Goshen, and they heard Moses' words, and they said, I don't want to take a chance on this, and they killed, and they did all the things that Moses had to do, and they had that on there, it seems like they would be spared. But they would be making a very public statement. They would be telling everybody, we believed what Moses said. And they put themselves on that side. That is a very public statement. It is out there on the doorpost. You cannot hide it. It's not like it just accidentally brushed up on one doorpost. No, it's here, here, and here. Three spots. The Lord saw it. The Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So the Lord will not allow the destroyer to strike. So this tells you this. The destroyer is submitted to the Lord. Do you get that picture of Satan that Satan is submitted to the Lord? I do not get that picture. There is nothing about anything I read about him in Scripture that tells me that he is submitted in any way. He is trying to do whatever he can to go against the Word of God, to doubt the Word of God, to undermine the Word of God. I don't see any submission from him at all. But this destroyer is definitely submitted to what the Lord says. So I went through Scriptures. And you can write, I gave you a little bit of space in there. You can write some of these down if you want to, but most of these will probably be familiar to you. This is not an, ex, an exhaustive list. This is just some of the times that a destroyer shows up in Scripture. First off, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Is that by the devil? The Lord went down. I'm going to see. If it is, he's going to destroy them. In the time of David, the Lord sent an angel to smite the people by means of a plague because David had made a census of the people. That's in 2 Samuel 24. There's no mention of the devil coming through and doing that. In Hezekiah's time, in one single night, an angel destroyed 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. There's no make that this was the devil. This was an angel of the Lord that came in and destroyed 185,000 5,000 men. Now think about this. And you can compare this even to the rest of them. If you are the devil and you have the Assyrian army camped outside the cities 
of Israel and Judah. Actually, this is probably more Judah. They're camped outside the cities of Judah, ready to come in and to wipe them out. Doesn't, isn't that what the devil wants to do? He wants to wipe Israel out. You have one, you have, how many, there's more than 185,000, but you've got all those Assyrian armies outside. If you are the devil, would you want to destroy 185,000 troops that are coming to wipe out the children of Israel that you have been trying to wipe out since they've been formed? Would you as a devil do that? So that destroyer there cannot be the devil because he would be doing things against what he wants to do. Now there's other enemies of Israel that came to a similar fate under Moses, Joshua, David, and other kings. They had armies that came up against Moses. They had armies that came up against Joshua. They had armies that came up against David. They had armies that came up against Jehoshaphat. And in those battles... There were angels that showed up and caused the people to die or caused confusion or did something that caused these armies to be destroyed. There's no way the devil wants to do that. He has probably fired these people up to come and to destroy Israel and then somebody came out and destroyed them. So there we have destroyers that are definitely not the devil. The prophet Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 9 saw in a vision a number of angels executing judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. And he spoke about it in Ezekiel chapter 9. The psalmist mentioned that the angel of the Lord would drive his enemies like dust before the wind. That's in Psalm 35 verses 5 and 6. Psalm 78 49 believed that the, the writer there believed that angels could smite one's enemies upon God's command. Well, then they would be a destroyer. Jeremiah warned that the angel of God who was with the Israelites would punish them if they departed God's ways. That's in Jeremiah chapter 6, 5 through 7. So we see just in those few examples there that I gave you, we see destroyers that come and destroy and kill and wipe out and they are not the devil. And they are definitely on God's side. And they are executing the will of God. That would seem to indicate to me that the destroyer in the book of Exodus is someone that is of the kingdom of light because he is executing judgment. Now, we went back over here at this part already. We said the children of Israel are in a foreign land. That the curse is pronounced on the foreign land, Egypt. The death would come upon them. We know that a curse has been put upon this world and death is imminent. But for those who receive Jesus Christ, there's a way out. The blood of Jesus Christ will keep you from that. Is the devil the one, is the devil the instrument of judgment for which God will judge the earth and, and, and cause death to come upon them? He is not. No, he executes his own judgment. He judges the world. And they are brought into death. Even in the judgment of nations that Jesus talks about, he puts them on the right, on the left, depart into eternal death. Get away from me. And they, and they depart. And there's other places where there's, there's judgment as well. He is executing the judgment. Now, we do have other places in the scripture that tell us that though he executes the judgment, there are angels that escort people and that put people into the places of the judgment that is there. 
so that they could be considered the, the destroyer. So this, this whole Passover is a type of the judgment that is to come, that the blood of the lamb spares you from the destroyer. The destroyer, in the way I look at this, the destroyer is nothing more than the judgment of God executed often by angels. Not the devil. I don't see any way I can make a case for this to be the devil. Verse 24, Exodus 12. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land of the Lord. will give you just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Now, the Egyptians were enslaving the Israelites. They would not listen when the Lord said, release my people. And so these plagues came out and God says, when I do this one, this is the one that's going to, they're going to chase you all out. And he knew that they, they would. But there was a, there was a slaving going on and they were going to be delivered from it. Thank God we have been delivered from the slavery of sin. That you, uh, verse 26, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of children of Israel and Egypt and he, when he struck the Egyptians and the, delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads in worship. Then the children of Israel went away and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Isn't that amazing? How many times do we hear in the Bible that the children of Israel did what Moses said? But here they did. Verse 29, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Imagine that. There was not a single house in which there was not one dead. So that tells us that deliverance was not available for them or that they didn't hear the message or that they didn't listen. But apparently every single house had at least one dead. Now, the reason they may have only had one dead is because it was a small house and maybe the only thing they had in the house was a firstborn son. Maybe the only thing they had in the house was a firstborn of some livestock. Uh, we don't know, but the smaller the house, they may not have had that many. But it seems that anyone in the Egyptian household all the firstborn were dead anyone who was born of the first adam will die you must become born of the second adam in order to live that is what this demonstrates for them because you have to get out of the old kingdom and into the new kingdom now i think i left this note in your outline it is likely that the decision to kill the males of israel from which Moses was spared, opened the door to this judgment upon Egypt. This judgment is symbolic, but more than likely when Pharaoh made the decision to kill all the males, that this opened the door for this judgment to come in. Now, he only, he only came back and killed the firstborn. But when Pharaoh did it, he killed all the males. But Moses was delivered from that. And then Moses comes on out, and he's the one who brings in this final judgment. Verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, 
and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land. Now watch this. For they said, we shall all be dead. People who do not listen to what God says come up with all kinds of things that they want to. There is nothing in what God said that would lead one to believe that all of them were going to die. He was very clear. The firstborn, firstborn male, that's the one that's going to die. But they decided, well, since the destroyer got in and destroyed the firstborn male, what's to stop him from getting the next one? What's to stop him from getting somebody else? And they began to run with it. And they began to decide that, well, the judgment is going on like this. Uh, No, that is not it. But they said they were afraid. They had come to all kinds of conclusions. But if they knew the word of the Lord, they would have known that only the firstborn male was to die. If they believed the word of the Lord, they would have known that. Now, here's here's what I put in your outline for you. How often do people surmise what will happen because they fear or assume? And Christians are responsible for that too. Israel, even in the wilderness, they a lot of times, because of fear or assumption, surmised what would happen. Well, God brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us. Well, because there wasn't enough grace for us in, the, in Egypt, that's why he, uh, he brought us over here. Verse 34, So p- the people t- took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bows bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, Articles of gold and clothing. So they just went up and knocked on the doors. Hey, you got any gold, silver for me? Uh, yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> and for the Lord, this was back wages. This is stuff they, they weren't paying them for doing all the work. And so now you're going to pay them. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot besides children. I guess also beside women. A mixed multitude went up with them also and flocks and herds and great and a great deal of livestock. A mixed multitude. That means they are not all Israelites. There are some people who decided we want to be on the side of God. Whatever, however they came to that. We're not told a whole lot of detail, but we just know that there was a mixed multitude that was there. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. We've gone over that number with you before. It was supposed to be 400. That was the original thing that God had said. 400 years are going to be there. Moses disobeyed and went after the... uh, uh, deliverance 10 years before he was supposed to and then decided I can't do this and so then he went for 40 years out in the wilderness and wasn't listening to God about coming back and doing what he was called to do until about 30 years past that and so he was out there in the wilderness for 40 years so we know that God had started to call him but he was going to prepare him and probably in about 10 years there was a way that God had for Moses to bring the children of Israel out at the 400 year mark but his disobedience took him out in the backside of the wilderness and he would not give God his attention until God finally sent the burning bush, got his attention, and still he didn't want to go. And God says, you're going. <laughs> now get out there. And so he finally did go. 
But that's why that 430 years is there instead of the 400 years that God had originally said to Abraham. It came to pass at the end of 430 years on that very same day. Now, I don't know what day. They, is there a particular day in which Israel became slaves? Is there a particular day that we're talking about when they came with, Ab- with the, the whole clan and they all just kind of came in? Is, is there a particular day that Jacob had come with his family and that's the day? It doesn't say what day it is, but the Lord is looking at this and says, on the same day is the same day they left. So right around that time that we had the Passover is the same day that they had either sojourned and come to Egypt or when they were put into slavery. I sort of think it's the time when they came to, and sojourned to uh, Egypt and uh, that this would be the, that time. Verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. So, in order for us to fully understand what this is about, we have to come to an understanding of what did the blood of the Lamb do. Now, here's the part that gets people mad at you. Now, I know when you talk about some stuff like this, people get mad at you. If you want to have a different viewpoint on the blood of Jesus, that's fine. I'm not here to convince you. I'm not here to persuade you. I'm only here to teach you. I'll teach you what the Word of God says. You can go off and believe whatever it is that you want to do. And do whatever it is that you want to do. I got a whole lot of Raymond people. People came out of the same school I did. People who went to school the same time I did. Who believe very differently on this. And I don't agree with a single one of them. And I'm not gonna. Because I've told you over and over. How many years have I told you this? There are three tenets that guide me. And they should. First off, it's in the word clearly. It's in the word often. And somebody did it. And if I can't find those three things, it is not something that I need to have my life ruled by. And anybody who wants to teach anything different, these are the same three things I'm going to bring you back to. It needs to be taught clearly. It needs to be taught often. And somebody needs to have done it. If we don't have that, then more than likely we are not understanding whatever principle we're trying to put to work in our life. It's just like prayer. Is prayer in the word clearly that we are to pray? Is it in the word often? Did people do it? They sure did. Is it in the word of God that we should lay hands on the sick? Is it taught clearly? Is it taught often? Did people do it? They sure did. And you can just keep on going with this type of stuff. If it's not done, I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm saying that you you don't need to guide your life by it. There are some things that are only in the word of God once or twice. It's not in there often. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means it's not a principle I need to guide my life by. We want to look for those kind of principles. So what did the blood of the Lamb do? First off, in the Old Testament, the book of uh, Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 11. I gave you all these references. I'm just going to kind of read through them quick. They'll have them up there on the screen for you, I believe. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood... That makes atonement for the soul. What's the blood do? Makes atonement for the soul. That's what it does. Jesus teaching in Matthew 26 and verse uh, 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. What does the blood do? 
Remission of sins. In the New Testament, we also have the Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, if you're wondering where I got all these scriptures from, I, went, I took the easy way. I just went up to a search engine and I just typed in verses on the blood of Jesus. That's it. And there's a whole mess of them that came up. I saw one that had 40. I saw one that had 20. I looked at them both. There's other ones that are out there. The one that had 20 was dealing with ones that, that's basically the list that I have here for you. The one that had 40, well, we were getting into verses that talked about the blood, but they weren't really uh, uh, defining what it was doing. So I didn't go into those ones as much. I just looked at the ones that take what the blood does. So we see here in the book of Acts that the church is purchased with his blood. That's redemption. Romans three twenty four and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So there we even talk over, bring the whole term Passover in there. But the blood, it is what is done for sin. In Romans chapter 3, 24 and 25. Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. What's the wrath to come? That is a judgment. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So we are justified by his blood. His blood gives us justification, so we escape the wrath. Colossians 1.20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So one of the things that his blood does is it makes peace between us and God. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So here, Ephesians tells us that we have not only redemption, but also the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, it, it, it cleansed our conscience from dead works. There's a cleaning that came from the dead works, from sin. It's once again dealing with sin. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How do we have boldness to enter into the holiest of uh, holy place of Jesus? Because His blood dealt with our sin. Therefore, I have boldness to enter in. Hebrews 13, 12, Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood. So his blood is involved in the sanctification of the people. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his sons, cleanses us from all sin. So there it tells us that blood cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Well, we know what that is referring to. So the blood is there to uh, for us to be redeemed and for us to be cleaned, cleansed. 
So what we learn from these verses, I couldn't leave all these things in there. I gave you some room if you want to write them down. I consolidate it into five things. First off, redemption from sin. We have forgiveness. Redemption, forgiveness. We have forgiveness of sin. Third, we have boldness. In spite of our sin, we have boldness. Redemption, forgiveness, boldness. Fourth, we have reconciliation. We're reconciled with God. And fifth, we have peace with God. So all these things in these verses, we have redemption, forgiveness, boldness, reconciliation, and peace. There's not a single verse in there that says that the blood of Jesus Christ dealt with the devil. The blood of Jesus Christ did not deal with the destroyer. It dealt with the Lord who was walking through. And when the Lord came to the blood that was on the doorpost, he passed over. And he would not allow the destroyer, he would not allow the judgment to come in. The blood does not deal with the judgment, it does not deal with the destroyer, it deals with the Lord. Because with the Lord we have redemption. With the Lord we have boldness to enter into his presence. With the Lord we have peace. With the Lord we have forgiveness of sins. With the Lord we have reconciliation. This is what the blood did. This is what the blood is taught about. This is what happened in Passover. The blood that was applied of the Lamb brought reconciliation. It brought peace. It brought forgiveness. Which is why the Lord saw it and He passed over and would not allow the judgment to come in because these things were there. But do understand this. The blood did not deal with the destroyer. It dealt with the Lord. When the Lord sees that the blood of the Lamb is applied for us, that we have received that blood, the destroyer cannot come in. Let's go over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to whom... To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Washed us from our sins. There's a cleansing that is there. That cleansing is by his blood. Revelations 12 verse 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now salvation and strength. Now this is the one that gets some people in the, uh, confused. You got to understand the whole context. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to death. Now that part gets some people hung up. How come it says here they overcame Him? Who is the Him? The accuser of the brethren. How did they overcome him by the blood of the lamb? Is that not the blood of the lamb dealing with the devil? No, it is not. Because look at the whole thing. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. It does not say they overcame Him and the work He did on the earth. And we'll see that in the next couple of verses. It says they overcame Him and the work He did in heaven, which was the accuser 
of the brethren, which is what the blood does, because with the blood we are redeemed, we are forsaken, we are forgiven, we have peace with God, we have redemption. All those things come as a result of the blood. So the accuser of the brethren, when he came to accuse, we overcame the accuser because of the blood of the Lamb. All right. Now take a look at the rest of this this uh, part here. Therefore rejoice... Well, it's going back over here. Going back to verse 10, the end of verse 10. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Down where? Down to earth. In the book of Revelation... He is kicked out of heaven. He comes down to earth and he knows now my time is short. And so he ups his game. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why are we saying woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea if we've overcome them? And we know from the book of Revelation that the havoc that is reached upon the earth is great. And in fact, at one point, we're even told that there's a group of people sitting there in heaven. John says, who are they? These are the martyrs who come out of the great tribulation. When will you avenge them? Their numbers are not complete yet, which means there are still more that are going to die. Because the overcoming that was done was the work the accuser did in heaven, not the work he did on the earth. What he did on the earth is going to be judged at the end of the tribulation when he is locked up for a thousand years and then he will be released again. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. This is where he was cast down. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time, that he has a short time. So he's cast down the earth and he is wreaking havoc. You cannot use that verse to say you overcome the enemy because you overcame the accuser. The enemy down here on the earth, he is still wreaking havoc. Now, I'm not saying we can't have any victories, and we do have some victories that are down here, but that's not what that verse is talking about. you got to read the verse in context. you got to see what it's saying. So the accuser of the brethren is the one who is, who is uh, overcome, and that is overcome because of the redemption, because of the righteousness, because of forgiveness, because of those things that are provided by the blood of the Lamb. Let's go here to the end. If Judah, in Jesus' day, understood the Passover feast that they celebrated every single year, every single year they celebrated this Passover feast, if they understood what it was and what they were doing, they would not have had the difficulty with Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6. Remember when Jesus said, eat of my body, drink of my blood? They would not have had any trouble with it. Because all Jesus was telling them was what you have been doing every single year in eating the lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost. If you would only have understood, you would have seen, this is me. This is me. I am the lamb. They would have had a whole lot easier time understanding it. But they didn't understand the very thing they were doing every year. And when Jesus taught this, they decided we're going to leave. People left who thought Jesus was the Messiah. The people that people left weren't the Pharisees. They weren't the religious people. These were 
if you go back to John chapter 6, the people who left, these are people who followed after Jesus and loved Jesus and liked Jesus and enjoyed his teaching. And saw him as either a good teacher or some of them saw him as Messiah. But when he taught this, they didn't correlate. They didn't bring in what Jesus was saying with what they were doing every single year for as long as they've been alive. They would have had a whole lot easier time understanding it. That helps me understand a little more what Jesus was trying to do there. He's coming to the end. He's almost to the end. He's almost to the point where he's going to be, be uh, sacrificed. I need you guys to get a hold of this thing. And so he begins to teach them this. And a hard time with it. Now, as we said, Israel was a foreign land. Or Israel was in a foreign land. And they were being pulled out for the promised land. All kinds of type, typology that is there. All they had to do was obey what God's spokesperson said to them to do. Moses was the spokesperson. He came down. He told them. You're not supposed to change the command. You're not supposed to decide what's more important. You are supposed to do what the spokesperson said. And how often does Israel have a hard time with this? How often do the prophets come out and say, forsake the idols, get away from the high places, stop doing these kind of things, move over into this, and they didn't do it. They didn't listen to the spokesperson. But they had this as a type in the very thing they would do every year. The destroyer will come to all those that are of the firstborn Adam. But the blood of Jesus gives us all a way that we can be passed over. That blood is there for everybody to be passed over. But you must receive the blood of Jesus. You can't receive the blood of somebody else. You cannot receive the blood of Jesus as a good teacher. You must receive the blood of Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God, come down here to earth, who lived a sinless life, who was a spotless lamb, and was sacrificed for you. There is no other way to get there. That's what we have to do. Those who left Egypt, they were a mixed congregation, as we've said in Exodus 12, 38. We read that one for you. But also in Numbers 11, 4 through 6. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Now the mixed multitude is brought out because first off they're still present, but apparently they had some influence on, on them and, and going in the wrong direction. Sometimes we can see the same thing. Verse 5, it says, We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. See, they're talking about the time in Egypt. They were there. They were part of that mixed multitude that came out. Now, the blood of Jesus does its work of restoring us to God so that this is the, this is the role of the blood. We read all those verses of Scripture on the blood. The blood is for redemption. The blood is for forgiveness of sins. The blood is for peace with God. The blood is for boldness. All these things we saw... The blood of Jesus does its work in restoring us to God so that we can use the name of Jesus with boldness. Not everybody could. There are some people who came out and they tried to use the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. But they did not have the work of the blood working in them. And well, Paul we know. Jesus we know. I don't know who you are. And they jumped on them and beat them up. But you see, when we have that blood working for us, then we can use the name of Jesus. We can stand with the armor of God and we can speak and walk in the authority given to us. That's what the blood does for us. There is nothing in the word of God that says the blood does anything against the destroyer. That it does anything against the devil. That's not what it's there for. The blood 
restores our relationship with the Lord. And that's what opens up the door for us. That is what Passover was about. The blood is of Jesus. Its work is between us and God. The blood of Jesus, when Jesus was raised from the dead, says to Mary, don't touch me. I haven't ascended to my father. And he ascended and he took his blood and he poured it on the altar that is in heaven. The very altar that Moses saw and patterned the altar that was down here after. Because the Lord said to Moses, everything that you've seen, make it exactly like that. Make it just like you saw it. So he saw it. He saw what was in heaven and he made it. But this is the altar that Jesus took his blood and put it on. We don't keep applying the blood of Jesus to anything. The blood of Jesus has been applied. It's done. But the blood puts our relationship with God in a place that we can do this. Now the enemy loves to get people sidetracked and he wants people to be looking at using the blood in ways that it was not intended. The blood is to restore your relationship with God, to give you boldness, to have peace, to have redemption, all those things. Forgiveness of sins, that's what the blood was for. So you can go out and use the name of Jesus so that you can go out and stand with the armor of God and have that confidence so that you can speak and walk in the authority that God has given you because you're not trembling because of your sins. You know, no, I've been forgiven. I can stand in this authority. I can, I have peace with God. I can do what God has said to do. Well, what's the difference if we go after the blood of Jesus and try and apply the blood of Jesus to the devil and do all these other kind of things? Because if you do that, you're not doing what Jesus taught you to do, what the Word of God teaches you to do, what the epistles teach you to do, which is to stand in the authority, to walk in your armor, and to use the name of Jesus. In the book of Acts, in the epistles, we use the name of Jesus. There's not a single time that Paul came up that Peter came up, that any of the disciples came up and did anything but speak in the name of Jesus. There's not a single time that the authorities ever say, we do not want you to speak about the blood of Jesus. There's not a single time they did that. They said, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Don't teach about the name of Jesus. The devil hates the name of Jesus being used. And if he can't get you to stop, then he's going to try and distract you and get you to go after something else. And that's where people go. And they're going in a wrong direction. We've got people that are blowing trumpets. Blowing those shofar trumpets. Trying to deal with the demon spirits with shofar trumpets. That's a distraction. It's the name of Jesus. It's the authority that we have in that name. That's what we are supposed to walk in. It's the armor of God. I told you before when we were going over the armor of God, I heard that one Raymond guy. He's well known. And he actually, in his message, I was listening to different people trying to find folks that I post on Monday. I was listening to this one, got me so mad. He said, the blood of Jesus is part of our armor. I said, what Bible are you reading from? There is nothing that Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 6 that he lists the blood of Jesus in the armor of God. But that's how distracted people can get. That's how far off that we can get on that stuff. And, you know, you talk about this, you get people mad. Don't ever get so married to a doctrine that you're not willing to learn. I've had, this is stuff I've had to practice. I have told you times that I have changed things. One of the easiest ones to bring out, 
when I went to Rima, I was a post, uh, 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 yeah, post-tribulation person. I believed there was no rapture. I believed it. Rima did not teach it. Brother Hagen did not teach it. He would come out often and he'd say, well, I've studied this for 50 years. And I still believe. And I, I'd say, well, I wish, this is, these were my words. They weren't the best words in the world, but these were my words. I said, well, I wish you would get that guy, that bozo you got teaching the class. I guess you wish you'd get him out and put somebody else in there. Because I could shoot down the argument that he was doing. It was a horrible argument. And it's one that kept me into that, that area. But then finally I began to see it. See, I didn't, I wasn't married to that doctrine. I was upset with how people were teaching it because I knew it wasn't consistent with scripture. But it didn't take me long. Once somebody came along and was asking the exact same questions I was and began to show me in scripture, it, it didn't take me more than a day or two. I dropped the whole thing. Oh, now I can see it. Oh, well, that makes more sense. All right, I can understand where that is. And I never looked back. Never went back there. You got to make sure that you want the truth. There are times that I have gone in the wrong direction. There are times I understood the word of God incorrectly. I thought I had it right. But I always got to make sure that I stay listening. Somebody's teaching them that, well, let me hear this again. And just make sure that I'm, I'm in the right spot on this thing. I'm believing the right way. Always got to make sure. Don't hang on to something so strong. Because again, the things that people do with the blood of Jesus, it is not in Scripture. There is no one who did it. It's not taught clearly to do it. And it sure isn't taught often. I've got to make sure that whatever it is that I do, that's what is, are we taught often to use the name of Jesus? Is it clearly taught to use the name of Jesus? Did people do it? Yeah, then that's the example. That's the way we want to go. (laughs) Let's go with what people did, not after these other things. The blood of Jesus, it's a work between us and God, and it is administered by the high priest. Every example you have in the Old Testament, every single example of the blood of the Lamb, it is only the high priest who can administer it. It is only the high priest who can take that blood and take it into the altar. It is only the high priest who can put that on the altar. It is the only one. It is not something that we're all supposed to do. Jesus was our high priest. The Word of God is real clear about that. Hebrews is real clear about that. Jesus is our high priest. He took the blood to the altar in heaven and He applied it. And that's all we need to do because the blood is for redemption. The blood is for peace. The blood is for forgiveness of sins. And the other five things that we put there in the list for you in all those scriptures. Go back there and look at those scriptures again if you want to. There is no place in scripture where the blood is deployed against the enemy. If you want to believe that it is, don't get mad at me. Just, well, we just won't agree on that. That's fine. That's fine. You don't have to agree with me for me to like you. <laughs> I can like you even if you don't agree with me on, on stuff. That's fine. That's, uh, we're, we're all good that way. But just make sure we do the things that the Word of God teaches us to do. But the enemy is always trying to get us to pursue things that are not in the Word so that we don't do what is in the Word. And that can be a problem. Be careful not to hold anything so tightly that you will not allow light to come in and bring you understanding. I always have to make sure of that myself. I always try to make sure. Sometimes when I take it on a topic like this, and it's been a while since we looked at Pastor Robert, i got to just let everything go. I've learned some things since the last time I went over this. Let's see if those things that I've learned have an application, that I can learn something more, I can understand this a little bit better. 
And uh, if I see something, oh, I didn't see it this way before, I'll be the first one to tell you, I was wrong. This was not the way that it would look how it is here. And now I understand scriptures better. Well, Father, we thank you for the, the blood of Jesus that has been applied. It has brought forgiveness. It has brought redemption. It has brought peace. It has brought boldness. We are able to enter into the high place with you and have boldness there. We are able to be bold with the name of Jesus, with our authority, and to stand with our armor on in the midst of battle and know our armor works because we have confidence because of the peace we have with God, because we have been redeemed, we have been bought by the blood, and we are pure. I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, any comments, questions, anything I didn't do in your outline that <laughs> maybe I should have should have done? Hopefully, we got all your questions on the Passover. Going, hey, it's been a long time since I went over Passover. I was surprised at how long it has it has been. But wow, we we just really need to spend some time on this because it's it's important. It points to things that are that have gone on. You forget. You don't really forget. You just you don't forget. You just um, all that. just not as mindful of it. Mindful you, of yeah. It. yeah, exactly. Anything back there? Oh, just a small comment. Uh, Tim Overmiller says going to have to chew on this a while. Oh, okay. How you doing, Tim? Nice to have you. And I believe Nikolai says thank you for the teaching. You believe Nikolai says? <laughs> well, it's because of the way it's in there. It's just in blue, but it's not like a comment under his name necessarily. Huh. I think. Okay. Where he says, well, whoever also just said, I like that Jesus applied the blood. So it okay. sounds more like Sharon, but it's not coming up with a name. Huh. So gotcha. it's hard to say. Yep. I understand. Sometimes a little bit tough there. All right. Well, I hope if anybody got mad at me, you don't stay mad too long. But don't get away from the name of Jesus. That is what we're supposed to be doing. That is what we're supposed to, to, to apply. Oh, that's my, oh, did it say Zoe Christian Fellowship? She sometimes logs in there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, sometimes if people are administrators on the page, they'll come up differently than their name. No, I got you. All right. All right. Well, hope you understand who the destroyer is. I think it's pretty clear as uh, as to who it is, and looking at other places in Scripture. But uh, I know a lot of people think that this is the devil. Uh, I have a real hard time getting my head around that being the devil. I just don't see that kind of a relationship between the Lord and the devil. Hey, thank you, Stuart. All right, all. Thanks for coming on out. And we are in chapter 4. I was doing all sorts. Last two days, all I've been doing was was Ezekiel chapter 4. Boy, there's so much history I had to dig into, and I'm digging all this history and stuff like that, and we didn't touch a bit of it. So we'll have to work on that for for, for next week and take a look at that because there's some, some interesting things, especially when you look at the area on uh, uh, resistance and opposition that we received, and this is what that chapter is really dealing with. And it, I, I Yes. I think maybe I was just thinking about it. We should be focused more on the Passover as opposed to this. Well, the Passover is one of the fulfilled feasts. So the way the Christians are looking at, it, we're looking at the resurrection. 
we should still be mindful of the Passover and understand all the things that were there, but they point to an event in the past. Whereas the resurrection points to a event in the past, but has current day, um, modern, uh, what do you call it, present day realities. So we focus more on the resurrection than that. But yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of that because it points to so much of what was done on the cross. And Yes. And everything in the Old Testament that was done was pointing towards the Passover. Yes. Yep. So the central towards focus the is the Passover. Passover and the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Yep. Yeah. The crucifixion. But, but what I was trying to say as well is that the whole crucifixion thing that as Christians we celebrate is not even biblical. First of all, we weren't even told to celebrate. We weren't told to celebrate his. We were told to re, when we eat the bread and Drink the blood to remember Jesus. Mm -hmm. He didn't tell us to celebrate his death necessarily, no, except did not. to eat the bread and drink the blood. He didn't tell us to celebrate his resurrection. He did not. That's exactly. True. So, as Christians, we took those things and, of course, you know, the whole pagan uh, connotation Look, with that, right. and why we are now as Christians taking that and making it the, the Easter holiday. aspect of it. Yeah. The Easter holiday. It's always like. Probably don't like to use that term. Yeah. Exactly. Even the, I guess, he didn't say to celebrate his birth either. No, he never did. And in fact, the church didn't do it until Constantine. Yeah. That's well, when it, that's where everything came in. That's when everything was Christianized. All that, all the pagan holidays. And some of the stuff that I'm yeah. reading about that, I'm like, oh my gosh, we don't even, don't even want to have anything to do with it. Well, the, uh, the Last Supper, as Jesus did it, and the way we always try and do the communion, is that he emphasized the Word of God, in my mind, emphasizes the two different parts. The, the, the bread at the beginning of supper and the blood at the end. That they are two completely separate things. The, the bread, his body, which is what they were eating in the house, the blood that was applied on the outside of the house, each had a role. The blood is completely sufficient in doing the redemption, the peace, the forgiveness. It is completely sufficient. It needs nothing to be added to it. The bread is for the uh, victory over the curse, the uh, healing, all that, and it's completely sufficient for that. It doesn't need help from the blood. The blood does not help the bread. The bread does not help. The, they're totally separate. And uh, too many times we, we merge them together. We're not understanding. There's a lot of people putting the blood in the bread spot and the bread in the blood spot, and we're just mixing it all up. And we just don't need to do it. <laughs> That's the... That's the thing we got to do. Make sure that we stay on that. So most of the time when we're doing communion, I try and take one aspect of that. But I think I'm I'm probably saying it till everybody's tired of me saying it. There's a whole meal in between the bread and the and the uh, and the blood. Whole meal in between because there is a separation between those two things. It would have been a roasted lamb, unleavened bread, the whole the whole bit. It was a Passover. It does. And the way they were supposed to do it, they were supposed to eat the whole thing. So. Yes. Yeah, because we do quick meals. Yeah, they don't do quick meals so much. as Because yeah, they don't do quick weddings either. Their weddings were days. You know, our, our weddings are hours. So their meals, yeah, they were, they were different too. So the intros and everything else they had to eat? They had to, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with that. 
Yeah, everybody had to, everybody in the house had to eat had to eat of the lamb, and um, the blood was applied only for the firstborn. But everyone in the house had to eat the had to eat the lamb because that was dealing with healing. The blood dealt with the curse that was coming on the firstborn Adam, and it, was, it had to do with that Passover of that whole thing. That's what his intention was. And it just made, made into something so completely different to having the enemy, Satan can't come near us, he has to pass over us, he has to skip up. None of that's in there. It's, and it's just, it's getting away. I don't, I don't like to get away from what the Bible teaches because that's going to mean I'm not going to understand what it did teach, which means I'm not coming away with the right message. And then I'm hindered. So even sometimes I'll look at it, at, it's one of these, and I don't have all the answers. I don't quite understand it all. But I'd still rather pursue understanding it correctly than to take a lesser, a lesser view on it and um, and be weakened in my Christian walk. So, so you said they, they spent the forty years in the wilderness because. Uh... Well, they spent forty years in the wilderness because of their disobedience. Moses spent forty years in the wilderness because of his. He, he was called to be. He heard the call, I put it this way. He heard the call to be the deliverer at about year 390. And he went out and he tried to physically deliver them, and he failed, so he left. He said, um, I must have missed it, whatever. He runs out in the wilderness, and he stays there for 40 years, which is why we got to 430 years. It was supposed to be 400. When Abraham was first told, your descendants will be uh, foreigners, strangers in a foreign land, for four hundred years, and that was the that was the intent. It ended up being four hundred and thirty, and that was because of Moses. Moses was disobedient, and then Moses wouldn't listen to God. God was calling him at year four hundred. Moses, that call is still in your life. Come on, let's go. And he's saying, "No, I can't do it. I tried to do it, it failed." And he uh, resisted for thirty more years, until finally he came out from with the burning bush. We've been a lot younger. Yeah. What would have if you had to go to heaven and find out what what was the timeline like if Moses obeys and just follows after your way and spends those ten years getting prepared, still in Egypt, and you know, what would happen? Right. Boy, I have no idea. Yep. But even forty years of disobedience, and God still used them more than probably anyone else. What's that? How long, how long did Moses? Moses was 120 when he died. 120? Okay. 40 years of wilderness wandering with the children of Israel. He was 80 when he started. 120 years when he, was, uh, when he died. And he would have lived longer if he hadn't been disobedient at the rock the second time. 